1: Joseph James D'Angelo is facing 13 homicide charges and 13 charges of kidnap with intent to rob in connection with the Golden State Killer crime spree. While law enforcement believes him to be responsible for the many rapes attributed to the East Area Rapist spree, due to the statute of limitations, they cannot file rape charges. At the time of this recording, Joseph D'Angelo has not yet entered a plea and is awaiting trial. This case is why we lock our doors at night
2: attacked all over california the community was taken hostage (laughs) brutal homicides one of the most prolific serial killers in the history of this state if not in this nation today we're going to launch a national campaign to help identify the golden state killer on April 25th, 2018, law enforcement arrested the man they believe to be the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo, a former police sergeant in Exeter and patrol officer in Auburn, California.
1: Joseph D'Angelo worked for the Exeter Police Department from May of 1973 through August of 1976, which overlapped with the Visalia ransacking crime spree.
2: Which coincidentally ended when D'Angelo started as a patrol officer with the Auburn Police Department in August of 1976, where he worked until he was fired in October of 1979.
1: The same time frame as the East Area Rapist Crimes in Northern California. And
2: today, we're speculating. How, if Joseph D'Angelo is the Golden State Killer, as law enforcement believes, his increasingly demanding criminal life correlates to his declining job performance and how he may have used his police training to aid in his criminal activity.
1: So while Joseph D'Angelo has a presumption of innocence and he's going through the court process in today's episode, we are speculating as to how he made it all work how D'Angelo went from a rising star in the Exeter Police Department during the time of the Visalia ransackings to a quote-unquote subpar officer in Auburn, California, during the time of the East Area Rapist attacks.
2: Former Contra Costa County Chief Investigator Paul Holes and former Auburn Police Chief Nick Willick return to offer their theories on how D'Angelo's declining job performance in law enforcement parallels the criminal case against him.
1: But first, Sun Gazette publisher Reggie Ellis and his editor-in-chief Paul Myers are back to paint a clearer picture of what kind of police officer Joseph D'Angelo was in exit based on the articles they've uncovered in their paper's extensive archives. Welcome back, guys. So in speaking with retired Exeter Police Sergeant Farrell Ward, we've learned that Joseph D'Angelo not only had a bachelor's degree in criminal justice, he'd also spend time interning at various police departments. But Farrell Ward said that the Exeter Police Department requirements were just a high school diploma.
3: Yes, and um, we interviewed Farrell Ward, too, and kind of his comments are, you know, we wondered why this highly intelligent, you know, law enforcement person. Well, what was he doing in Exeter?
1: What was he doing in Exeter? <laughs> wow. Well, I
3: mean, in, in, in other words...
1: He had family there. Well, but in other words, he was
3: right. just so overqualified for, you know, being a beat cop, essentially.
4: And, right. and I got to imagine, I mean, you know, we're talking about an era where, you know, not everybody went to college either. You know, it's right. not like today where that's kind of just like what you do. It's, it's a you know, the a bachelor's degree held a you know, held a lot of weight where where you were going. And when you're talking about rural towns where there's, you know, one high school school districts and then your nearest university is an hour away, which isn't close in those years by any standards. It's it says a lot that somebody's willing to kind of come in with as much experience and an education like he had.
1: Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about that Exeter PD at the time, nineteen seventy three. What are we talking about?
4: You know, it's a small police department, um, you know, probably proportional to the 5,000 residents that were in Exeter at the time. Uh, You know, it was a small, quiet town. So you can imagine that there wasn't a lot of demand to have partner patrols. You know, you know, there was a lot of cops that would go out in their car and they would patrol for 12 hours and they would and that would just be them. So. Not a lot of activity for uh, for the police department.
2: In a small town like that back then, what was the sentiment of the everyday people towards the police? Uh, I mean, obviously, we live in a very charged situation today. What was it like there?
4: You know, I, I think that it's kind of what you would expect of small town friendliness towards the police uh, that you kind of think back on uh, in the 60s and 70s. You know, police were a force of good. They were people who you could walk to and trust. You know, they were.
3: Think Andy to... Griffith and Mayberry. That's yeah, kind of and that's we're...
4: that's kind of how we how we do it. They were they were the people that, you know, you you might call to say, hey, my cat's in the tree. Can you get the fire department? You know, those
2: types of interactions. Right. So so the kind of they, it was the kind of thing where they would trust them. I mean, if if you're a police officer in a small town, you just automatically carry this certain air of trustworthiness with you.
3: Absolutely. Back then, all of the officers who work for the ex police department uh, lived in the community. Again, like uh, now you'll have officers, you know, who work for Fresno PD who live in Exeter and, uh, you know, commuting is just kind of a part of modern society. That wasn't the case in the 70s. Nobody was commuting an hour to go to work.
1: Right. So it's also like your neighbor is the local cop. and Exactly. And I think also crime was pretty low, right? It wasn't like homicide rate was anything to talk about in Exeter.
3: Mostly no. just property crime.
1: Property crimes, meaning what kind?
3: Vandalism, small time break ins, smashing bikes. Like, yeah, someone breaks a window in a car and steals the radio or something. I don't know.
2: The type of stuff Andy Griffith investigated.
3: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, more so Andy <laughs> Griffith, less Barney Fife.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: okay. Cool. So, from what you've seen in your archives and conversations you've had with people like Farrell Ward, it seems like Joseph D'Angelo was regarded as a really good police officer. He is seen as someone who's rising the ranks and and smarter than maybe your average patrol officer. So overall, kind of what is your impression based on everything you've read of Joseph D'Angelo as a police officer?
3: Well, I I think when you think about what made him particularly good at evading police officers is probably the type of thinking that would have made him very good at police work. And so I'm assuming he was pretty well liked by his superiors. They probably looked at him. Maybe "well liked" is the wrong word. I mean, he probably kept to himself most of the time. But they were probably very happy to have some no nonsense, you know, hit the streets kind of guy. Where they're and they're seeing the productivity. You know, they're they're seeing the arrests and you know these teens out of Farmersville or other people. You know, he's turning in stuff, getting you know helping get convictions in the local municipal court. They're looking at him and saying, like, you look look at the stats on this guy. This is the kind of officer that we want. He is applying everything that he knows, and he is making good arrests that are sticking, and he is doing it a lot. You got to think that if you're a manager anywhere,
4: if you have a guy that has an education that isn't necessarily found uh, where you are, shows up every day to work, makes arrests that other officers weren't making before he got there... And the comu- and and the community doesn't seem to have a problem with him. That sounds like a great employee.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. He's very reliable. Yeah. Seems trustworthy.
4: Doesn't waste any time yeah, t- on
1: yeah, he's
3: on not. extraneous stuff.
4: No. He uh, he. You know, he's not taking hours off work that aren't accounted for. I mean, although clearly they haven't been, and. You know, he, that guy sounds like he's like he's on a promotional track.
1: So after Exeter, he goes to Auburn and takes a demotion going from a sergeant to a patrol officer, which I've heard from many people, including Feral Ward, that that's not necessarily crazy because you're going to a much bigger department. Sure. So he might have been even been making as much money as a patrol officer in Auburn than he was as a sergeant in Exeter. But I think what what is super interesting is in Auburn, he was doing eight hour shifts Supposedly always showed up on time, never really called in sick. You know, you could count on him being there, but he wasn't he wasn't talked about in terms of his intelligence or his law enforcement skills as, you know, that remarkable as opposed to an exeter. So, yeah, it could be that if Joseph D'Angelo is indeed the Golden State Killer, as law enforcement believes that, you know, as the East Area rapist, he's taking a lot more time to set up these more right, you know, difficult crimes. And and so I think as Paul Hull says, you know, the Auburn job becomes a day job and his passions lie elsewhere.
3: Yeah, that's a great that's exactly right. I I think that he is so consumed thinking about his night job, if you will, that he just isn't giving any sort of thought or effort into whatever this other thing is that pays the bills. And I think in Exeter, it was very easy to split his focus between the two. Uh, one, it's a rural area, like you said. And uh, also, you know, they, the officers in the Auburn area may all be more educated than the Exeter officers. It is a bigger department, uh, or they may at least be more seasoned or more experienced.
1: Correct. Yeah, the the basic level entry for Auburn was an associate's degree, which right. is, again, it's it's two years of at least community college versus just a high school diploma.
3: Which Which can be a big difference if your life goal is just to get out of high school with a passing grade and go into a manual labor job back then. But if your aspirations are larger than that, and you've gone through the work to at least go to college, take some coursework, pass your courses, you're getting exposed to a whole nother level of education, especially back then, than many of your peers in in other parts of the country and in, in your own industry. So... That two years of extra schooling is a very big deal when you're talking about the difference between high school and college.
1: I also sometimes wonder if when you're doing well and you're moving up the track and you're getting promoted, you're getting more attention, right? So the higher up the ladder you go, the more people know about you, the more people are going to be looking to you that maybe he made the conscious decision to be, I don't want to put myself in that position in Auburn. I want to be able to blend in more and, and hide in the back. You know, I'll show up, I you know, I'll, I'll never call in sick, or, you know, I'll do the basics required as not to raise a red flag that way, but to kind of blend in more. Because if you keep getting promoted, you're you're going to be written up in newspapers.
3: Well, yeah, and where, where does he go to? Where does his final career end? He ends as like a mechanic, essentially, And if you know anything about mechanics, they they tend to keep to themselves. They show up, you know, they can have headphones on all day or not talk to anybody all day and just work on their jobs. So he seemed to like consistently retreat into more seclusive work as he, you know, kind of grew in his notoriety as uh, for his nighttime job.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I imagine, especially since you've got your old boss telling you, why aren't you going to the FBI? <laughs> right. And now you're over here. You're like, I just don't want to look that smart. You know, I, it, it's, it's probably dangerous for me to show off the intelligence that I do have.
3: Yeah, I think it's all very strategic. And I think that's kind of the the overarching M.O. of everything that d'angelo did as the golden state killer is it's just very strategic like every step was like well i could make more money at this but i'm not really working for money i'm i'm just trying to find a place where i can indulge my darkness uh and then still have something that pays the electric bill
2: Right. And you know you make a really interesting point in that, you know, a lot of law enforcement officers have said that Joseph James D'Angelo, he was really just wearing the uniform as a costume. The badge was a prop hiding behind the facade of an officer and not really trying to be one. What are your thoughts on that based on what you know?
3: Yeah, you know I, I, I don't Paul, if you have thoughts on that.
4: I, I think that that's absolutely accurate. Um, I think that there would be no better disguise than to be in uh, the position of catching the person who commits crimes like you commit crimes is hiding in plain sight. And it worked really well for him for decades. And, you know, I, I think that as smart as we know that he is and how strategic as we know that he is, it was a... Uh, calculated move, and it was executed with expertise.
2: Thanks again to Paul Myers and Reggie Ellis from the Sun Gazette. And from Joseph D'Angelo's quote unquote good cop reputation in Exeter, we turn to Auburn to speak with D'Angelo's former boss, retired Auburn Police Chief Nick Willick, about D'Angelo's quote unquote subpar performance as a patrol officer under his command.
0: That's A-N-G-I dot com. We're back with former chief of police in
2: Auburn, California, Chief Nick Willing. Uh, We're talking about Joseph D'Angelo as a police officer. Now, in Exeter, he was viewed as a great cop, but you had a different experience. Tell us, what were your duties when Joseph D'Angelo joined Auburn PD?
5: When Joe D'Angelo was hired as a patrol officer, I was a patrol sergeant. I worked patrol, and I was a supervisor on patrol.
1: What was the hiring process like at that time? Because D'Angelo was a sergeant at Exeter PD, but then stepped down to
5: patrol officer in Auburn. I didn't even know what he was a sergeant at Exeter.
1: Yeah, he was promoted a few months before he left.
5: officers that have gone from sergeant to patrol, it's not calming. Because typically, you know, a sergeant, you have uh, better pay, typically better shifts, you have seniority. So I wouldn't call it usual. It does happen. But it's not usual.
1: So going back for a second, what kind of process would D'Angelo have had to go through to get the job in Auburn? Because newspaper reports showed the deadline for the job application was June, and he didn't get the job till late August. So in those two months, what would have happened?
5: The vetting process in 1976, there would be a personal history statement, background check, Checking with the names of the people, past employers, past teachers, etc. But there wasn't the psychological examination and the lie detectors and stuff that they employ today. Today, an officer coming into a police department would typically undergo three to six months background investigations, extensive medical examination, extensive uh, background, checking with friends, neighbors, old school teachers, you know, friends of friends. Not just the people that that person lists on the personal history statement. Also today, we have psychological examinations, you know, there's lie detector examinations. So the vetting process is much better than it was then. It'd been interesting if he'd gone through the normal vetting process today, you know, the psychological. I mean, they take written tests. There's time on the couch. It would have been interesting. Did you know
2: about D'Angelo's experience on the burglary task force and his anti-burglary training?
5: I never heard of it. I didn't know about it. I don't know if he was hiding that from the police department or maybe he just never discussed it with me.
1: Well, Auburn did have burglaries, correct? So this expertise is something that he could have used to get himself noticed.
5: I think that if I knew that he had this training, I you know, would say, well, you know, that's a good training to have. Because a lot of our crimes were property crimes, burglaries that would have been beneficial for patrol.
1: How would you describe D'Angelo as a police officer?
5: Joe didn't act like the typical police officer, in my opinion. He had some oddities. Sometimes when you look back at a person, you, you find things that you didn't necessarily think was too important at the time. But he was different than the typical police officer, to the point where he would try to be overly friendly to everybody. When he would talk to you, he would get real close and touch you. Some people, you know, in the department, they would say, well, you know, he's Italian. He gets close. He touches. I particularly found it a little annoying myself from a personal standpoint, but I also thought from an officer safety standpoint, it was dangerous.
1: Did Joseph D'Angelo have relationships with other officers on the force, maybe other patrol officers?
5: I don't know if of any close relationships he had with anybody on the force. I've talked to one officer who told me that he had, uh, apparently had a hobby of remote-controlled boats and he took this officer who was a sergeant and his kids out to play with a remote-controlled boat. But I don't know of anybody that had a close relationship with him.
1: So he managed not to stand out.
5: He didn't do anything exceptional, in my opinion. I thought he, at, at best he was a subpar officer, below average. I don't recall him making any significant arrest. I don't recall him writing a lot of tickets, making drunk driving arrests. I don't recall that at all. He just kind of seemed like someone that was, you know, just going through the motions. To me, he didn't really fit. His personality wasn't really that typically of a police officer. I mean, he, he wasn't violent. He tried to be happy, jovial, but he just seemed a little different for a police officer.
2: So what are the typical personality traits you see in a police officer uh, that he was lacking?
5: Most police officers are, are pretty confident in themselves. He did not seem to be that confident It seemed like he was always uh, searching for recognition. I know there were several times where he would, you know, come up and talk to me. And I remember one time I told him, he was saying how he was worried about me. I didn't seem happy enough. And and I told him, I said, Joe, I said, I'm fine. I said, you know, you worry about me more than my mother. And my mother worries about me too much. So we just, him and I did not click. We really didn't. He had a tendency when he got upset or when you disciplined him to pout, almost like a child, like a little kid that had been scolded. He would just get quiet, you know, and uh, kind of keep his head down. And wouldn't say anything, wouldn't argue, uh, you know, I, I never saw him lose his temper. You know, and I'm not saying he didn't. I just never saw him lose his temper.
1: Did he seem insecure in his abilities as a police officer?
5: There was an incident one time where I had responded to a silent alarm, a burglar alarm in a building. And I was checking the building out. And uh, when an officer normally does that, you know, you try to be careful not to be detected, not to put yourself in a position of disadvantage or in harm's way, so to speak. And I had just checked the back of the building. I was walking around to the front of the building. And as soon as I rounded the corner, Joe D'Angelo drove up and he illuminated me in front of the window, which was a, you know something you just don't do because you have a silent alarm. There could be someone inside that's armed. And uh, after we secured the building, It turned out it was a false alarm, but still no. You know, we had no way of knowing it was a false alarm. After the building had been secured, you know, I pulled Joe aside and told him, you know, you don't do this. I went through the whole process of trying to explain to him what he should have done, you know, how he should have approached the scene, where he should have parked, what, you know, radio traffic, etc. But uh, he did not take criticism, and I guess you could say that was his way of trying to avoid detection. He would deny everything that he felt possibly may uh, change this image that he was trying to project of who he really was.
1: Looking back at that incident, is he just a bad cop? Did he not know any better, or is he pretending to be a bad cop? Because from what we know of his training in Exeter, he should have known better here, no?
5: I don't think Joe D'Angelo was pretending to be a bad cop. I think he just made mistakes. Uh, He did not fit the image of a police officer, and it was almost like he wouldn't, wouldn't think. He wasn't thinking. I mean, obviously, illuminate someone in front of a building, it's just he wasn't thinking. It was all part of, at least my image of him at the time, was that, you know, he was a poor police officer. He didn't uh, practice normal procedures that a typical police officer would practice. And I didn't know if that was from lack of training or what. Of course, uh, looking back on it now, you know, obviously he did use his training to help him. Why he made the mistakes he made, I don't know.
1: See, that's what I'm bumping up against. He knew better. Is he pretending to make mistakes?
5: I don't think so, because he pouted so much. It always seemed to me that he was wanting me to like him. You know, it was like he needed something. He needed the recognition from me. I don't know if he wanted that from everybody, but the impression I got was he needed some sort of recognition from me.
1: Like a son from a father?
5: Yeah, like a child. It was almost like a son seeking his father's approval. Like I said, it was almost immature. It was childish almost.
1: Did he ever acknowledge fault?
5: No, he wouldn't apologize. It didn't seem like he wanted to hear what I was saying. He didn't accept criticism.
2: As a superior, it must be difficult to work with that. How did you handle that at the time?
5: There were several situations that I talked to him about and... He would act that way. I just took it as someone that had difficulty taking criticism. And I thought that that was a fault. And I felt that it was detrimental to his ability to be a police officer, a good police officer.
1: So in early 1979, you've moved up the ranks and are now appointed chief of police in Auburn. And then in July of 1979, Joseph D'Angelo is arrested for shoplifting. What were your first thoughts?
5: Even though... uh, Joe D'Angelo had some oddities, and uh, uh, I was surprised that he was shoplifting. I never saw that in him. I didn't think he was a thief. There's a lot of theories about shoplifting. Shoplifting is for thrill-seeking, and seeing if they can get away with it. I mean, obviously, uh, he would have had the funds to pay for what he was stealing.
1: Was it a surprise to you that Joe D'Angelo would steal for thrill-seeking, or did you think that fit his personality?
5: Well, I think it was a surprise. I I was surprised, you know, especially a police officer to do something like that. It didn't make sense to me at all.
2: Looking back, how do you reconcile the fact that Joseph D'Angelo has been identified by law enforcement as the Golden State Killer?
5: Without DNA, I, I would have spent probably said, no, it can't be him. It's impossible. He couldn't have committed these crimes. He, he just wasn't the type of person to do this. I would have probably felt that way. But DNA is conclusive. Joe wore a lot of different masks. He uh, hid his true identity from his officers, fellow officers that he worked with, from the, the citizens that he was hired to protect, from the, uh, his own family. I mean, from, probably from his wife and uh, certainly from his children who didn't even know he had been a police officer. When I think back that uh, Joseph D'Angelo was a, you know, the Golden State Killer, the East Area Rapist, the Visalia Ramsacker. And he committed these horrific crimes, you know, while he was a police officer, while, you know, I uh, worked for the Auburn Police Department, that I knew him. I think about that daily. You know, I I search my mind over and over again. Did I miss something? Should have we seen something?
1: Do you think he will ever talk or come clean?
5: I don't think that Joe D'Angelo will ever confess to the crimes unless it's done so in a way for self-preservation. That instead of uh, being executed, that he gets uh, maybe life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. As part of a plea bargain, uh, he may admit to the crimes then, but I think he will only admit to the crimes that he's been caught for. I think uh, just by his very nature and what he has done in the past, he probably will not reveal anything else other than he has to, you know, just to protect himself.
1: The Joe D'Angelo you know never said sorry, right?
5: I didn't know Joe D'Angelo to say he was Sorry and i do not think that he would do it now tell the victims the victims families the loved ones of the victims that he's sorry i just don't see that happening if he did do it again it would be for an act to protect himself so he can gain something from it but i sincerely don't believe it would be from his heart do you have anything to say to him today I have nothing to say to Joe D'Angelo that uh, I think would make any difference to him. I think he's devoid of personal feelings, I think he's devoid of guilt And his mind. He apparently justified his actions, I don't see how. Uh, it's just beyond my imagination how someone could do the things that he's done and justify it in his mind and somehow he did that and I don't understand that.
2: Thanks to former Auburn Police Chief Nick Willick for returning to speak about Joe D'Angelo as an Auburn Patrol officer. And coming up next, former Contra Costa County Chief Investigator Paul Holes is back to offer some insight into how Joe D'Angelo made such a drastic turn from good cop in Exeter to subpar officer in Auburn, and how that reinforces law enforcement's belief that Joseph James D'Angelo is, in fact, the Golden State Killer.
1: Very different accounts of Joseph D'Angelo as a police officer. In Exeter, he was moving up the ranks, being promoted, given important assignments. In Auburn, the chief of police remembers him as subpar at best. To discuss and see what we can make of this discrepancy is our guest, Paul Holtz. Paul, welcome back. Nice
6: to have you. Hey, glad to be back.
1: So what do you make of this very different feedback on D'Angelo as a police officer?
6: There's several different things to take into account. You know, when when D'Angelo is a police officer down in Exeter, he is just starting his career. And as anybody who's just starting their career, they're probably going to be putting a lot more effort into that profession early on than by the time he's up in Auburn. You know, he's a few years into the career. But I also think that as an Exeter police officer. He's putting the the efforts in with a very small department, but he's also now offending and committing all these burglaries in addition to the Claude Snelling homicide and, and ultimately shooting uh, Officer McGowan. So you start to see his criminal life drawing more and more of his attention. When he moves up to Auburn, now what he's doing is he's not just going in and committing fetish burgs. He's going in and sexually assaulting women. He's going in and attacking with men present. He's escalated up his, his uh, attacks. The amount of pre-planning that needs to go in for these is also going to be much more burdensome. And so I think his mental resources and his physical resources, being out prowling and doing all that planning is taking his attention away from his job. Uh, so he's not applying himself as much as an Auburn police officer as he was down in Exeter. And it's also possible Exeter and Auburn just had different standards in terms of what they expected from their officers. Just they're two different departments.
1: The thing that, that always throws me is Chief Woolley describes these incidents where, you know, you're like, Good God, a rookie would have known how to handle that situation. And, you know, D'Angelo wasn't doing what was expected of him. And you're just like, is he that tired? Even though Willock says he never seemed tired, is he just trying to act like a bad cop? Because I think in Exeter, obviously, as he's doing a quote-unquote good job, he's becoming more and more visible. I mean, his name's in the paper. He's, you know, he's getting that kind of recognition. Is he maybe thinking... You know, maybe I just turn it down a little bit so I can fly more under the radar that way and keep focusing on on my extracurricular activities.
6: I, you know I, that I, I don't know. I, I, I'd i be somewhat surprised at that because, you know, I think D'Angelo really identified with being a police officer and having that authority. You know, that was core to him. So I would not think that he would want to come off as a poor police officer. I just think he ended up not either having the the attention, the, the energy, mental energy to respond correctly under high stress events that officers need to be able to do yeah. because he's so distracted by his criminal activities. That's really what I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, because it is fascinating when you look at a map and you're like, okay, Auburn to Sacramento, we're talking, you know, 40 minutes each way. Right. You know, we know from Chief Willick, he was never late on the job or, or called in sick in any, you know, crazy amounts. So... So he has his 40-hour-a-week job, and then he's doing all this driving back and forth. And then when you get to Modesto and Davis and Contra Costa, that's even a much longer ride. So it's huge. It's huge. Like, how do you—if Joe D'Angelo is doing all of that while working as a full-time officer, like, when is this man sleeping?
6: That's just it. And so one of the things that when I first looked at D'Angelo and I saw he was a full-time Auburn police officer living in Auburn during the entirety of the East Area Rapist series— I'm going, well, no way. How could he hold a job? Because we, we know the number of attacks that he committed in Northern California, you know, as far south as San Jose, and that is a hike from Auburn. You know, sure. that's multiple hours each way. But he's also committing numerous burglaries, and he's out prowling all the time. I just don't see how he could have done both. That, again, it's... You know, there's a few things that I really want to know, and that's one of those things is is how was he physically able to be a full-time officer, not run into disciplinary issues as a result of, you know, falling asleep behind the wheel, and be out doing all these, these prowlings and attacks all over Northern California. It just blows my mind. It's almost like it's physically impossible for somebody to do that, but he obviously did.
1: Yeah. And when you think about Exeter, you know, it's 10 minutes from Visalia and he was more on like making his own schedule as a daytime investigator by the time the ransacking starts. So there's a little more more leeway there for D'Angelo to commit those crimes, if that's in fact what he did when he goes to Auburn, he's back down to a patrol level. You know, he's got to show up and he's got to be on the radio the entire time. Like you said, he can't fall asleep behind the wheel. So you know, maybe maybe that's where he is making more of those mistakes, because obviously, as the East Area Rapist is committing those kind of crimes and burglaries and prowling, that almost seemed like a full time job.
6: Absolutely. And that was being done almost exclusively at night.
1: Right. Yeah. (laughs) How hard is that?
6: (laughs) So you know, and, and, you know, D'Angelo is working, you know, according to, to Chief Willett at the time, you know, they were on, I think it was a three month, a rotational schedule. They were working five-eighths, but every three months they would change from daytime to swings to graveyards. You know, so D'Angelo's constantly having his, we want to say the circadian rhythm being disrupted just by working as an officer, but also his attacks, his pre-planning is going to also be disrupted because if he's preferring to attack in the middle of the night, yet he's on graveyard shift, you know, for the next three months, he's going to have to alter his pattern a bit in order to work around his shift.
1: Yeah. Plus, I mean, Chief Willock was telling us that he was, uh, you know, because he was new to the force, he was part of the relief officer schedule so that, you know, he could get pulled into, you know, people going on vacation. And so so even within the three month sections, he might have still even been even more you know, constantly changing schedule, So
6: yeah, that's yeah. a lot yeah, to manage. And I even looked for a pattern within the, the, you know, the East Area Rapist attacks to see, could I see that three-month rotation, you know, in terms of times and dates when the East Area Rapist was attacking versus what D'Angelo's on-duty shift would have been. But I couldn't find it. So, I, again, right now, it's a big mystery.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, without Joseph D'Angelo speaking out and telling us his story directly, we're obviously just speculating. But no one better to do that with than you, so... Thank you for your take on this. Yes.
6: Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure.
2: Coming up next week, many in law enforcement believed it, and now signs are pointing to it being true. Joseph James DeAngelo, the suspected Golden State Killer, is, in fact, someone's husband, father, grandfather, and neighbor.
1: What is it like living next door to a suspected serial killer? We speak with one of Joseph James D'Angelo's neighbors, Grant Gorman, whose childhood home in Citrus Heights shared a backyard fence with De Angelos.
2: Grant used to play with D'Angelo's daughters and remembers some terrifying moments living on the other side of the fence from Joe D'Angelo.
1: And for more on the Golden State Killer case, you can watch the complete Unmasking a Killer documentary series on demand with CNN Go.
2: And the entire companion podcast series, including these new episodes, is also available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Biagio Messina.
1: And I'm Joke Sioun. Thanks for listening.